0: Well, hello, and welcome again to uh, Creating Hope Together podcast. I hope this podcast finds you well and uh, really glad you're here Uh, today. We're going to be talking about uh, a journey in addiction, and we're going to be talking to Joanne today, and she's going to share her strength, hope and experience with us and tell us about her journey. So I hope you can get a lot out of this information. And I always want you to know and remember that um, what we talk about is not medical advice. Um, I'm not a trained therapist, um, so we do encourage you to seek out professional assistance if anything uh, Trips a trigger for you or you understand what's going on and you can apply it to your own life, definitely use it, but definitely seek out professional help, online assistance. Uh, There's meetings out there um, in in the fellowship. So look for help. And uh, that's what we're about. This podcast has always been about and um, we're going to get started on it. So I'd like to welcome today, I'd like to welcome Joanne. And Joanne, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm great,
1: Peter. Thank you so much for having me. What an honor.
0: Well, I really appreciate you uh, coming on and uh, sharing with us today. So we are just going to jump right into the process. So if you wouldn't mind, just go ahead and um, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, well, I'm on this podcast because I'm a person in long-term recovery, and what that means is that I haven't had a drink or a drug for um, coming up on 20 years, and that seemed impossible when I began this journey because I was a daily drinker, and before that I was a daily pot smoker, and so the fact that, and before that I was a daily cigarette smoker, way more than one, Um two packs easily. So I come to understand myself as, as kind of having an addictive brain. Uh, we used to call it an addictive personality, but it's actually an addictable brain. And I am very addictable and I'm addictable to sugar and flour and I am I'm addicted to shopping and um yeah, I think those are the main ones. And so over the course of a lifetime, I continue to just let things go. And I don't do it alone. I have to use uh, supportive communities. I have a relationship with a higher power that really carries me through all this. And I do a lot of work.
0: So, yeah, so that, that uh, brings me to one one question here. So, uh, there was nicotine uh food uh marijuana alcohol um <clears throat> was did you find was quitting the hardest part or was the work that preceded uh quitting the hardest part
1: oh what an interesting idea um Two, two hard parts, quitting and staying stopped.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think anything before that was not as hard because it was using. So that wasn't very <laughs> right. hard. That was right. the easy route. Uh, until it just got intolerable. I mean, the reason to quit varies. But for me, the reason was a misalignment with who I wanted to be.
0: Gotcha. Now
1: I just wasn't showing up the way I wanted to.
0: So let me ask this. Um, I have this 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 came to me a, a couple of weeks ago. And so when we're at we're at the line and we know that our addiction is, uh, in its process and it's trying to destroy us and everyone around us. And then you start on this, you make this decision to, uh, quit and, and, and go in another direction for you. How did that happen?
1: I mean, it varies with the different substances, but yep. there was a moment with each one of them where the way I was was going wasn't working. I guess I would take issue with what you say. I know this is common that addiction's trying to destroy us. I've come to understand that addiction is actually trying to protect me.
0: Hmm.
1: It's an old way of feeling safe, and it no longer works. I've outgrown it. But at some point, soothing myself with a substance really was all I was able to do. I didn't have any other skills. And I didn't have anybody to show me how to process the emotion or deal with the difficulty. So that addiction was a friend. And I'm not at war with it. I just can't let it be in the driver's seat.
0: So... Was to do you see the addiction as a, uh, a way to self-medicate?
1: Yeah, self-soothe, self-comfort, celebrate, um, protect. It has it has many many functions. Gotcha. Which is why um, it can be very hard because all of those functions have to be met with another another practice, another form of meeting that need. That takes a lot of skill. It takes, it takes a lot of other people. Um, it takes some brand new behaviors.
0: So what were some of the things, so we self-medicate, or let's just say, uh, we medicate for a, uh, you know, a broken leg, we get medication to help with the, the pain, once the chemical, the alcohol, the food, you know, once those things were removed, what were some of the things that you found that you needed, let's just say to treat, what were some of those things that you found that um, made use um, seem in the beginning, like the the only option?
1: Oh, yeah, that's really good. Um... You know, what comes to mind is loneliness. <laughs> um, occupying my time, being making friends with emptiness. Gerald May has this line, "If once we make friends with emptiness, we see it as spaciousness. And spaciousness is an invitation to God. But every addiction is because the emptiness feels terrible. It feels unbearable. And I think as a little kid, that emptiness was met with food and sugar. And then I started drinking six months after my dad died. I was 16. He died really suddenly of a heart attack. And when I found out and drove home crying, my mom met me at the door, gave me a hug and said, buck up, we've got company so i had a lot of grief that was not expressed and a huge hole in my life that alcohol and being a party girl suddenly and no longer a good girl took over
0: so grief was really one of the the initial things that you worked on what were so once you decided to go to what, you know, you, so your active addiction increased and you kind of, you realized at some point that this wasn't for you, you wanted to start driving. Um, mm-hmm. What was that process? How did you go about um, making the decision? What did you do? Uh, was there treatment? Was there just meetings? Was there therapy go into that a little bit for us oh um I was in
1: there seems to be some kind of feedback I don't know are you hearing that too I am I on my end yeah
0: I'm not hearing it at all is it on okay. when I talk or when you talk
1: it's when I talk okay so it might just be these AirPods. anyway <laughs> um I was in therapy when I got sober was in therapy and I put down the marijuana and the reason I did, it, I was a daily smoker and I was, I was doing a consulting job and I was just too fuzzy. And it, it was, it was the first time I realized that this drug was having an effect on my mental acuity and I put it down and after a month or so, my therapist said, so what's it like? Now that you're not getting high every day. And I just looked at him, I shrugged my shoulders. I go, well, I'm just drinking more. I mean, I was totally aware that I just had to compensate. I'm like, yeah, I'm just drinking more. So then I knew I would have to put that down at some point. And I was dating somebody who didn't drink and I wanted to marry this person. And he didn't get on me, but it one one evening. We did have a conversation and he said, we haven't talked about your drinking. And I kind of, my heart sunk, and I said, what do you want to say? And he said, what do you want to say? And I said, well, I think I drank too much. And he said, I would noticed. And I really didn't even drink much with him. I just drank before always we got together and whatever. So I knew that was, he talked to me, and he was a trained sociologist, so there was no moral stuff around it. He just talked about my circumstances and the context and, my age all this stuff and and then he said I'll come over tomorrow and help you get rid of your alcohol and I looked at him I go well I don't know if I'm ready for that (laughs) you know I thought we were just having a conversation and he said well if you're not ready then you need help that was a really important conversation because Mm -hmm. I realized I don't want to have to go to treatment and I went home and got out all the alcohol, and I had just up-leveled. It was around Christmas. I had up-leveled and purchased better scotch, better wine, all these liqueurs. Mm. And I made gift bags for a bunch of non-alcoholic friends. I was like, I am not throwing this stuff away. And then with the ones that I was most attached to, my tankerage in, I just put it down the sink and really said goodbye and then I hung on with my knuckles for about three weeks Mm. and I was in a therapy group and talking about this but it was time to go to a meeting and I lived in a town that was small enough that they put the weekly meeting schedule in the newspaper and I had been looking at it for a long time And there was a meeting called Women's Beginner Meeting. And it was at a place that I'd been before, which I think is really important when these um, support meetings meet in churches and fellowship halls and things, and not only clubhouses, because that is an entry point for some people to go, oh, I know that place. I can go in, or that's my church, or whatever.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So I went, and... It was a women's meeting that covered steps one, two, three. That's why they called it a beginner's meeting, but the language was so, I don't know if I'd call it jargon, but it was language I had never heard. I did not feel like it was very open to beginners, but I also wasn't able to introduce myself as an alcoholic. I said, you know, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. I think I have some problems. And they just smiled quite indulgently and um, just said, keep coming back, which I did. And I ended up going to honestly a couple meetings a day because the evenings were very hard. Mm. I could go at noon from my job and walk to meetings where people were getting court cards signed and people were professionals and it was a whole range of folks. And then by seven o'clock I needed another meeting because what was I going to do all night? I'd been drinking home alone all for years yeah. and and so those meetings really saved
0: me so a couple of things there is <clears throat> um I was kind of I guess not big on it but I I really believe in the the symbolism of of um you know the pouring down the sink uh, yeah. and saying goodbye to it and really just saying <clears throat> okay um I'm gonna take the control back um so I really like that that uh you had that as part of your process uh-huh. and then the other thing was you know find the familiar um I recall see because I didn't go to treatment either <clears throat> and I went to a a family grew a family week where uh, my dad was in California he uh, fell off the wagon came back to Minnesota and it was at a hospital in Minneapolis and he they had family week and they invited all his kids and we had been disconnected him from him since I was two years old right. and uh, so we went to the this family thing and that's where I saw I actually, I've said it before. I saw it in someone's face, this woman's face, as I walked past her. She was impatient. And uh, I saw hope in her face, in her eyes. Hmm. And I said, I was in active use at that time. And I said, I want that. I, I want, I got to find a way to, to get that. Because I, I can't look at myself in the mirror. And... So when I <laughs> they had it on recording, right, uh, here's uh, Sunday's meeting is at this time in these places and the contact person is so and so. And boy, I listened to that thing. and It was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And there were so many of them. And it was like, oh, this guy's name is Bart. And I go, ah, I don't like Bart's name, so I'm not going to call him. Uh, for the tuesday (laughs) meeting right and this was a sunday i believe and so i picked this guy his name was perry and he he was the next sunday a week away and at saint mary's hospital was was where i had that um well i have to call it a spiritual awakening uh, an awakening right there and I said, oh yeah, I'm so-and-so and I wanna come to that meeting Sunday and seven. And his, the first thing he said, he <laughs> he said, do you think that might be a little far off? You know, it's a week away. How about if I meet you on Tuesday at St. Mary's, Aww. same time and and that's really how it all started. I went that Tuesday and and uh, I guess the, the rest is uh, history so finding the familiar that's why I told that story mm-hmm. about whatever it might be um, the building or the place could have great significance or some small significance uh, to you this is for the listeners that um even if you drove by it a number of times on your way to work years ago yep. or something yeah yep. find that familiar and Um, embrace it
1: I go to a meeting three mornings a week that puts a big AA sign out front and there were some people apparently worried about the anonymity but the bottom line is we get people that come in and say I drove by this for a year oh wow and now I'm finally coming in I mean We can't be invisible. We can be anonymous at the level of press, radio, and film, but we don't need to be invisible because recovery in the world, well, addiction is usually portrayed as somebody in active use, and it looks awful. Recovery is rarely portrayed in film and TV. I mean, it is occasionally, but not really usually addiction and that's where the stigma comes from nobody knows that 20 million americans are living lives of recovery right right
0: and how beautiful that that is i guess that might not be the greatest thing for a movie plot but
1: yeah, right. yeah, <laughs> right. it's not very dramatic it's
0: not dramatic you know, um it, the...
1: it isn't the kind of story that usually hits screen, it is the kind of story I'm most interested in. I love non you know, non-action packed things. I like an interior novel where I get to see how somebody feels and thinks and characters grow and change because of human interaction.
0: Yeah. And and, and I think the way you know, active recovery works is um, you and, and you had said where did you get Clean or uh, sober in the beginning. Where where were in, you then?
1: Indiana. I was in Indiana.
0: So you're in Indiana, and then you move around, and then you land in a spot, and then you go to a meeting three days a week, and you meet people there, and one of the people that you meet uh, knows me, and then mentions mentions me, and then we you and I uh, talk and here we are on a podcast and sharing that information about recovery. And, um, it's amazing (laughs) Mm -hmm. how it all works, you know, it's beautiful. So the, um, it sounds like, um you had said you you know you're not in a battle with your addiction and it sounds like that um and it was like this for me as well is that your actually your addiction was a solution
1: uh, it, yeah yeah it was a solution i mean i i probably by any measure be what sometimes is called a high bottom I didn't have legal consequences. I didn't really have physical consequences. I think my consequences were spiritual. Um, I just wasn't able to make the connections with a higher power to be as useful, to feel as authentic. And for me, those are enough. I don't I don't want to go. I believe addiction is an elevator going down and you can get off on any floor. But you get back on it's only going to go down. I did have a relapse almost 4 months in to my original recovery and within 3 days I was drinking like I had never drunk in my life, you know, much harder, much it was it was astonishing because addiction is progressive. It gets worse over time and that's why I need to stay in active recovery. It isn't a switch, and now I'm in recovery. I mean, that addiction is, is always going to have – it's a riverbed in my brain, and it might dry up because I haven't put alcohol in it for 20 years. But if I put alcohol in that today, that riverbed would be raging within a couple of days, a couple of weeks. I don't know how long, but I don't want to experience it. So I have to do what we call a daily reprieve, from this active thing I have. And that daily reprieve includes acknowledging that I need support, being of service, uh, really just taking a bunch of actions that keep me centered so that I don't need relief from my life.
0: That is, that is so vital. That right there is so vital because there's a, a uh, thing that that i call um <clears throat> addiction amnesia active addiction amnesia right and how i forget what it was like and how um difficult it was and how i didn't want it anymore and how i needed to change um but while I was in active recovery, it's funny how I had active addiction amnesia because it got further and further from my my brain. And so I had to do, um, you know, do the work to stay away yeah. from it.
1: Well, and I think the other thing is the identity of a recovering addict, alcoholic, whatever it happens to be, is really an important identity. And I don't get that identity when I'm hanging out with 90% of the world that can drink normally. I get that identity when I go to a meeting of other people who have the exact same thing, who lead very normal lives. The only difference is we don't get to have a molecule of alcohol in our bodies because we have a different physiological response. We have mental obsession about it. And when I'm with those people three times a week, I'm reminded, oh yeah, I don't drink like normal people. And, you know, it's been long enough that it just is hardly ever an idea that comes to me. Mm-hmm. In the early days, it's very hard. It, it, it takes a lot. It's why like many people have to go to a place where there is no alcohol on the premises for 30 days, however long, right. you know, I mean, that's a real thing. Because getting sober in your own home and community and on your own, you know, pathways with all the visual cues is not easy.
0: Yeah, it's funny how it gets so intertwined in almost everything we do.
1: Yeah, I mean, I had certain alcohol and glasses I used. For such and such and you know if I took a bath I would always want another kind of alcohol I mean I had I loved all the accoutrements of it I'm I remember one time somebody came over and I was like oh good and I got out my alcohol and she said do you just look at me and think let's drink and I'm like well she doesn't know I drink all the time but yeah if there's an actual excuse for it I'm thrilled <laughs> yes gotcha
0: uh the next thing you know what I'm gonna let's just take a quick break right here all right after that uh little break there um we are back and I wanted to you mentioned it um a little bit earlier about um the spirituality part and uh, your spiritual journey in this process. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that process or a (laughs) lot of bit?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's It's an interesting thing to talk about because it is a little challenging to put what I think of as something ineffable in words, but I grew up going to church uh, I grew up always believing. One of my favorite books when I was little was this storybook, If Jesus Came to My House. That was about a little boy, and Jesus is a little boy, and he comes, and the, the protagonist gives Jesus his best chair and the best cup of tea and his favorite toy, and and then the moral is we're supposed to treat everybody that way. And even as a little girl, I knew I wasn't going to be as generous or kind as the boy in the story. I'm like, yeah, I like to hang on to the best of things. (laughs) I I knew that even as a kid. But I was a believer and never, you know, even when my dad died, I wasn't mad at God. I wasn't, you know, I was heartbroken, but God didn't play a role in that in my life. Um... And then I was an exchange student in Turkey the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. And I lived for the entire summer with a Muslim family, probably the most generous experience I'd ever had. You know, here I was, not really knowing the language and connecting at a heart level and such generosity. And I came back from that recognizing how many paths there were to spirit that my very Lutheran upbringing wasn't the only route. And my pastor, I gave a lot of talks when I came back and um, my pastor said, I know how much you love those people, but Joanne, you have to realize they aren't going to heaven because they don't believe in Jesus. And I knew at that moment that that was not right, Hmm. that that the the dogma didn't line up with my lived experience. And that was a spiritual awakening, where after that, I had to trust my experience. I think there's, there's professing beliefs, and there's actually having a lived experience of unconditional love, of this... Power that's way beyond what I can understand of the synchronicities that Carl Jung talks about that show us there's a harmony in the universe that all I have to do is get get in alignment with that harmony and and life is pretty magical even in an ordinary day and um, so I was a big believer I was a meditator so by the time I got into the twelve steps that wasn't new to me that wasn't anything that I had to reckon with but what I found in meetings was a kind of testifying to the power of this divine creative intelligence in ways that I'd always been hungry for and never experienced in a church setting. Um, you know and, and that varies with denominations but the denomination I was raised in people didn't testify to the role of God in their lives. They didn't testify to much. so that was that was what kept me coming back was that experience of being among people for whom a higher power was saving their life. I also was praying in a way I'd never prayed in my life because I wasn't sure I was going to get through the night sober in those early days, weeks, months of recovery. And I had to have a higher power help me. And I also went to bed early. All the time it was like if this is a one day at a time program then this day needs to be over mm. i just need to go to bed <laughs> i can't do another minute of the day so i was well ready and um say it it was part you know i'm a trained spiritual director so i came to minnesota for a job in higher ed and moment where you know i was i was giving a talk at um, St. Catherine University meeting the panelists who were other faculty members there and the man said i'm in their spiritual direction program and the, i said oh St. Catherine's a spiritual direction program and this voice in my head said that's why you're in Minnesota i was like oh And, you know, that summer, I started taking courses, one a semester, to be a trained spiritual director. Anyway, my life is just full of these little moments. Turns out this professor who felt like this electrical shock when he said he was involved in the spiritual direction program was the docent at my now husband's dorm at Notre Dame. (laughs) And... You know, I hadn't even met Brian yet. It was just, you know, it's just like the, the connections, the webs of how we are held up are just astonishing if we're open and willing to see it. And it's not about conspiracy, and I'm not a big believer God has a plan for me. I think I have, and unfolding, and there are many paths, that my life can take, and all of them are good. There, you can't do this wrong. All I want is to be in alignment with the best in me on a daily basis, and 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 you know, honestly, of help to people, to be of service, and to and I believe that in recovery, the best way to be of service is to be happy, joyous, and free as much as possible, which is what the big book promises. You know, we are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. Why? Because that's the best advertisement. If I'm miserable, nobody wants 20 years of recovery, if that's what that looks like. That is not an advertisement for the the life I'm living. So there's a responsibility to be joyful. And my, my experience is when I am most connected, which is a kind of bewilderment, a kind of embracing of mystery, a little bit of wonder, definitely appreciation. These are the qualities that keep me open to the, to the almost magical invitation that waits me next.
0: So it sounds like um, going to church young, uh, seeds were planted there the exchange program uh seeds were planted there and whether we knew they were being planted or not they were there and then at some point you had that spiritual awakening and as you walk through your path now do you see some of those seeds just like oh they're they're blossoming over here now and then they're blossoming here now and we never know which seeds that were planted early um bloom does that make sense
1: yeah yeah sure writing a memoir so that's kind of looking back at all these sort of moments and seeing where are the roots of some of these things and um like, I don't go to church now, but I'm in a, I'm, I'm in a, on a Lily Grant where spiritual directors are paired with congregations for two years to teach contemplative practice. And I'm in a Lutheran church, and I was there last night. It's like, yeah, that's very interesting. Now, I don't go to church, but I have roots, and it's working. With this particular small group of people including a marvelous pastor and i teach contemplative practices once a month so it's just yeah who knew who knew where any of this is going to lead
0: right yeah I,
1: yeah who knows i mean yeah the whole thing is kind of interesting and i did work in hazelden betty ford for 10 years as a spiritual care professional and boy getting that job was kind of an interesting set of circumstances and um, and then it's time to leave and move on to the next thing and I I think what recovery helps me do is is not hang on to things too long past their expiration date groups jobs mm. um, activities mm. it's like there are seasons to life and I don't want to do anything out of just going through the motions. I want what I do to actually fill me up spiritually because that's the best way I'm of service.
0: And so this program, this 12-step, uh, this um, spiritual program, this this uh, journey that you're on are kind of like two things uh, popped up for me. Is, one, you've been doing the work you know, to use a, a like an uh, analogy is like you're this gardener that's doing the work, and you're clearing the weeds, and you you're finding great beauty in doing that work. And um, <clears throat> the other part, now that my great uh, Swiss cheese brain, uh, what was it? So you were doing you do the work, and then. Um, I can't remember the second part. Okay. So, um, have you found that is that the the work that you've done really uncovers a lot of that, um, instead of staying, Oh, the Our part now <clears throat> is the, this program for me, I see it as a, a roadmap and all maps have a begin point and a destination. And once you're at that other destination, then you're at that's a new start point and then you can go you go on to the next and the next and it sounds like that's what what you do you don't you keep moving forward yeah Yeah.
1: well i certainly want to i think when the life force is moving through us it's the best way to feel alive um i i don't want to yeah i guess i do pay attention to when things go stale and it isn't always externally that something has to change. Most of the time it's something internally, like I need to I need to, you know, switch up my meditation practice or get a writing coach or um, you know, do something else. There, there are lots of internal kinds of things that can can be different to keep life interesting and alive. And usually it's the next level of honest open and willing because As an addict, I think I'm hardwired to always want more. I don't know that that's ever going to change. But what I can do is turn my desire for more away from stuff, substances, uh, kind of addictive processes and behaviors, and turn that desire for more to the qualities i want to be more honest more authentic more vulnerable more connected have more intimacy um there are lots of qualities i'd like to enhance and and there is no limit to better so why wouldn't i use this trait of wanting more in that direction and it's I mean, it's kind of a catch-22, because if I've got a judge going, then I've never arrived. I mean, this journey that we're on, there is no end destination. Right. uh, Because recovery, in fact, one time I heard somebody who was very high achieving and said recovery was such a challenge, because he always set goals and met them. There is no (laughs) single goal with recovery. The process is what you have to like. We're going to be doing this the rest of our lives. We better love? talking to sponsees, doing work with a sponsor, going to these meetings, being in conscious contact <clears throat> with a power greater than myself. I mean, if I don't love the stuff of recovery, I don't get to hang on to it very
0: long. Hmm. Hmm. It's funny how the the program does work. Is In the beginning, it sets out a goal of 30 days, then 60 days, and then you start to come to realize that it's that 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 goal is important. Those goals are definitely important. But then there's all these um, other fantastic goals in our life that are so possible and continually involving. Yeah, that's beautiful. Right. Right. So. In the. Kind of closing up here, if there was um, the one thing or the things that you could say to someone that was in front of you that needed to hear a message, this message of hope, what would you say?
1: a big uh, decision and it's a choice you're going to make and it's going to be hard but the way we do hard things is we don't do any of it alone so if you could have done this if you could have gotten sober or gotten off sugar or gotten clean by yourself you would have a long time ago it's just it's nothing that willpower does there's no moral failing this is this is the way your brain responds and it's so habitual now that you're really going to need support to do it differently and you can do it differently because millions of people are so don't make it up from scratch it's a pilgrimage you've got to walk it yourself but you don't have to create the road there's a guidebook there's guides there's other travelers and it's it's going to be the journey of a lifetime um might as well take that first small step because it is just a step at a time that's what we get to do that's fantastic
0: all right um i cannot thank you enough
1: well for... thank you i you're doing such a great service and if this helps one person then our time has
0: been well spent a- absolutely and uh really again thank you for coming on spending your time with us today and we truly appreciate it
1: all right take